Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Bodhi Brew, offering Advantage Through Insight. I'm your host, Confidy Kong, Creative Director of Bodhi Research Group. In today's episode, we cover systematic investing. Co-founder and CIO of Castlefield Associates, Chris Schindler, and our visiting researcher, Pierre-Philippe Saint-Marie, discuss the ins and outs of systematic investing. Castlefield Associates is a bespoke asset manager capitalizing on value investment opportunities in the liquid exchange traded futures market. Chris Schindler spent 18 years at Ontario Teachers Pension Plan, building their internal systematic hedge fund and leading asset allocation. So sit back, relax, and enjoy a cup of brew with us. Welcome to Bodhi Brew. My name is Pierre-Philippe Saint-Marie. I am a visiting researcher with Bodhi Research Group, and I'm here today with Chris Schindler, CEO of Castlefield Associate. Today, we will be discussing systematic investing. I have a very short disclaimer to do before we start. This is not an investment advice. So Chris, what is systematic investing? So in its essence, it's a way of creating uncorrelated return streams that you can add to your portfolio. It's done using machines and models and programs that are pre-built and pre-thought and then automatically okay. run. And, and at the end of the day, you say why? And, and the why is because you want, in a portfolio construction world, you want as many diversifying sources of return as possible. And typically, people look to active management to add ways to enhance their portfolio. What and, differentiates systematic investment versus, for example, non-systematic investment? Yeah, exactly. And in many ways, they're sitting on the same sets of ideas. In fact, if you talk to any discretionary investor, and you ask them to take you through their thought process, they will almost always have some set of heuristics that they follow, some set of rules. And if it's a, you know, I'm a, I might be a stock picker, but I look for value. I might have a value screen. I might be looking for value at a reasonable cost. I might be looking for value that has some upside momentum. And, and so if you follow those rules where you say, what does that mean? Well, I screen things for this and I look for this. And when this happens, I do this. Systematic investing just takes those heuristics that most investors already have and codifies them. And so, and what you can do when you do that is you can, you can, you can test a, a variety of different, of different ways of running it, um, but you can also have a very consistent and confident process underneath the hood. Um, and, but the real huge advantage of systematic investing is that whereas a human investor may only be able to do that, you know, on 5, 10, 15, 20 names, a systematic investor can do it obviously across a much, much broader universe because a computer is keep, uh, absolutely happy to do that on all 500 stocks or in all the different futures in lots of different ways with lots of different ideas. It can just run them all, it runs them very quickly. And then the next step and what the systematic investor will also do is once you have all these individual bets, Mm -hmm. they can bring them together. And because you usually, because they're codified, you have a certain sense of how they work and how they interact. The portfolio construction becomes more confident and more straightforward. And by by that, you mean you have a various sets of different processes that are running on different assets and then you can you can more easily be able to put them in into a, a, a structured portfolio asset allocation? Sure. Well, think about it this way. Imagine you had five discretionary managers. Mm-hmm. And imagine we can think of stock picking or we can think they're global macro. Imagine they're just betting the S&P 500. You know, you have five guys who are just betting or five men and women who are deciding whether to go long or short the S&P 500 today. And that's their entire process. If it's purely discretionary, and, and, and you don't understand their process in any way, you don't know what they're going to do next, you actually have no idea how they're going to interact. Maybe they all, going forward, will move together. Maybe they all make the same sets of decisions. They read the same newspapers. They have the same set of heuristics. They do something very similar. It's very hard to know 
what they're going to do ahead of time. If you knew ahead of time, then you probably wouldn't invest in them because you would you'd know their process. But you, you assume that they're doing stuff, but you have no idea how they interact and you're not exactly sure how much risk they're going to take. And you're not exactly sure on any given day, what's the probability that all five are long a lot of S&P at the same time. And, and so that, that interaction of the discretionary process is actually very, very challenging for an investor and managers mm -hmm. because it's quite conceivable that at any given point in time, you have these concentrated bets that you don't know about because, you know, your managers are doing it. And if you, and if you, you know, if you on average are only betting a million dollars across all five on the S&P, but on one day, all five are betting a ton. They're all long 2 million each. And you're suddenly along 10 million, you're long 10 times as much. If the S&P has a really bad down day on that day, it's going to really catch you. And so that correlation across the processes is something that systematic investing can handle really nicely because the correlation structure, the return process, the way the models interact, it's very persistent and consistent over time. And it's something that you can have some confidence in. And so the portfolio construction is easier. It's something that you yeah. can design as being more sturdy, more robust, and avoid, for example, phase locking. Absolutely. So, so you've got that piece, which is like, how do I you know, aggregate a risk? So you also have another problem with discretionary managers is that, well, what happens if one's long S&P consistently and the other one's the exact opposite consistently? What happens if Every time one goes long, the other one goes short. Well, that's a bit of a disaster from your perspective because you're not taking any risk at all, but you're paying. You're paying you know, the one that's going to be right. You're paying the winner and the loser. You're <laughs> always losing on fees. You're not getting any risk. And, and, and so what you end up with when you have a bunch of managers is not just diversification. Diversification is good. Diversification is like, this makes some money. This takes some money. This has some risk. This has some risk. And you put them together and you can add the money. But the risk doesn't add. The risk adds up by less than the amount. And so what you end up with is the same amount of money and less risk. And diversification is great. It's what you're looking for. What you can have with, with, with managers is not diversification, but cancellation. Mm -hmm. right? And cancellation is one's long, one's short. You can't add that. You add that so you, you, you lose on the return and the risk and you don't get the same benefit. Diversification requires uncorrelated risk and then you can add the returns. And so if you don't know how your managers interact and you don't know what they're going to do next, it can be quite challenging from a risk and portfolio construction perspective. But it comes down to the same fact, which is, you know, what should you do as an investor? You know, first rule, diversify. And so you shouldn't put all your money in one stock. You probably want to invest in an index. If you can invest in an index, you're probably going to beat the vast majority of investors. That's an asset back. diversification. Asset diversification. You go, should you invest in just one index? Should it be the S&P 500? What about the NASDAQ? Mm -hmm. What about UK? What about Australia? What about Canada? And you say, oh, so maybe I should be a global diversifier. I'm going to buy a bunch of different indices and put those together. You go, okay, that's equities. And maybe I'm, I'm nicely diversified now. You go, well, what about fixed income? Should I invest in some fixed income? And you say, okay, so maybe my, por my portfolio has some stocks and some bonds. How much? Well, that's a big question. And we call that decision of, of how much equity and how much fixed income your portfolio construction question. That's, and those are your two betas, right? And by betas, you that's mean- right. The definition of beta being there's, a, there's an equity beta, there's a fixed income beta. But the point being, this is kind of the return that you get by just giving money to the market without having to be smart about it. You don't have to time it. It's not like I have to be smarter than someone to, to make money in it. If I just put money in beta, it will give me its beta return. So how do you put them together? Well, okay. So the first thing is when you're portfolio constructing is to think about what are your sources of risk and return. And in an ideal world, if you have two ways to make money, if I gave you two boxes, and you said, I didn't tell you anything about them. Two black boxes and you go, where do you want to put all your money? Well, you could put all in one or yeah. all in the other, but that would actually be a pretty bad investment decision because this might be the best and it might be the worst. And this might be the best and this might be the worst. If you put half your money in each, 
you get the same expected return. They each have the same expected return, so you get the same expected return, but you reduce your risk mm -hmm. by the square root of two times. And so same return, less risk. You should always take that bet. If I showed you four boxes, you should put one quarter in each if you know nothing, nothing else. about it. So if you know nothing at all, you should equal bet things. But it gets a bit trickier because you do know some things about some of your betas. Equity beta is more volatile than fixed income beta. So if oh, I told so well, it, it depends, right? I mean, you're looking on average yeah, yeah. over time, about two to three times is volatile, but not at all times. That's another, that's a, a more that's complicated a, that's question. That's an interesting question. We, we will come back to, to how we you think about volatility. modeling risk. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and so we've had some very, very volatile fixed income, but even in its most crazy days when the UK gilts are going 4% a day, that still wasn't as bad as the bad S&P days from 2008. So, True. so, so, um, and now the thing is, if I, if I told you this guy has three times the risk and three times the return as this guy, and I put $1 in here and $1 in here, I'm not making an equal bet anymore. Mm -hmm. This one, like $1 here is kind of worth $3. Correct. Cause you don't have the same volatility. Right. Because I don't have the same volatility and volatility, it turns out is relatively predictable. Not perfectly. You can't see into the future and stuff always happens. But with a pretty good degree of, of validity, I can say, I can ordinarily rank these things. I can tell you that if this is like less vol than this, I can, I can take that information and use it to make a better portfolio. All so right. what I really want to do, if I have two things that are equally good, is to put the same amount in each. If this has got three times the risk and three times the return, I want to put three times as much in this as this. And then I've got maybe something a bit balanced. Now, that's super naive. And there's a lot of questions. And how do I figure out the risk? But I can tell you this. If I have four things... And I think they're all equally good. And I don't know which one's better than the other. So I'm not saying they're going to end up like of the four, obviously one's going to do better and one's going to do worse. And two or three, or two are going to be in the middle. But if I can't tell you ahead of time, it's like saying, I don't know which box to put the money in. If I can spread across those and if they're uncorrelated, and this is like, this is like, I'm going to play around with some math for a second. Say these four boxes are uncorrelated. They're all the same expected return. Then if I spread my risks perfectly, I can take my sharp ratio, which is like, I'm going to talk about sharp ratio for a second. It's my return per unit of risk. Yep. Okay, I'm investing risk and I'm getting return. Yep. And I can double it by portfolio constructing it properly. If I go one quarter in each, I get two times diversification benefit and I double my return on risk. Now, so now I that, that's asset that's now asset allocation. That's portfolio Let, construction. Portfolio yeah. construction. Let's talk about investment process diversification. Right. And so this is so this is the issue. Because this we this don't is have important. four boxes. Yeah. If you're an investor. You typically, if you go, how many independent boxes do I have? It's two, maybe two and a half, because stocks and bonds. And then you go, well, I've, I've got privates. Privates are not as uncorrelated as you think they are. If I take a public company and I, and I, and I take it private, yeah, it's still have the same cash flows, same yeah. exposures. It's, it's got a lagging and a smoothing effect that in the short term makes it look different. But over the long term, it's sitting on the same economic factors and it's going to be quite highly correlated. So if I take a business private, if I'm thinking about months, half year, year, then yeah, like that lagging and smoothing is helpful. It shows up as diversification. If I'm thinking over a five-year, 10-year period, it's not going to be. And so if you're, if you're a long-term investor, you don't get diversification or you don't get as much as you think from the privates. You don't get, you know, something like putting money into credit. Credit is kind of a mixture of stocks and bonds and some, yeah, a like, little bit of short volatility and a bit of illiquidity. The so Merton privates, model is famous for yeah. linking credit to uh, equity. Absolutely. There, it's, there's they're, definitely they're both some, calls on the yep. same economic business piece with like well, different parts of the capital structure. So you yep. got credit is actually not as diversifying as you think. Illiquidity, maybe a little bit, but credit and illiquidity are correlated. And if you look at like the major investments people make, which is somewhere between credit, privates, stocks, and bonds, 
you do not have four independent things. You maybe have two, two and a half. So with two, two and a half independent things, if you portfolio construct it perfectly, you can get, I don't know, roughly 1.5 times better return on risk than if you put all your money in any one of them. And why 1.5 times? Well, because if you have two independent things, yep. then you get the square root of two yep. risk diversification, which is like 1.4 times. So I said, if you've got a bit more than two independent things, you get a bit more than 1.4. So call it like one and a half times. Okay. I've got one and a half times more return for the risk I'm willing to take or one and a half times less risk for the same return. You can, you can think of it either yeah, way. Yeah, either okay. way. But if I have four boxes, I can have twice the return per unit of risk if I have four independent boxes. And then if I have 16, I have four times the return on risk. The question is, if all I invest in is stocks, bonds, credit, privates, there's only so much I can do there. I want to find other independent boxes. And that's typically where you go to an investment process, investment process into yeah. and what we call alpha. And if we're going to call alpha, everyone's got a different definition of alpha, but let's just say it's the stuff that's uncorrelated to the stuff you already have. If well, you, and, and generate positive return or else and you, generate I mean, positive you have negative yeah. alpha, which is not that interesting for, from an investment Definitely not that helpful. So, so you're looking for positive return, things that are uncorrelated. And then that math of diversification can start to work in your favor and start to take over. And so if you want to, and, and, and let's just talk about the portfolio construction again for a second. If you had access to four things, imagine you, there's four different independent boxes I could invest in. And I say, well, what could my return on risk go to? Imagine each of them makes about 5% on about 10% risk. So say like if equities are at 20% risk, makes around 10%. If, you know, but let's say make, each of them makes around 5% on 10% risk of like excess return. If you have one, you expect to make a five or 10 return. You put all your money in any one of them, you expect five over 10. If you, if you do it perfectly, you can get 10 over 10 or five over five, depending on how you think of that. Uh -huh. Okay, so you doubled your return for the same amount of risk, which is very, very, very hard to do, by the way, to double your return. Warren Buffett did not double the return of the S&P 500 over the last 20 years. Like it's like doubling your return is hard, but if you, have, if you can find four independent things, you have a decent stab at it, but it requires sizing it right. And so the sizing is a huge piece of the question. So wait a minute, yeah. Chris, before you, before you get there, are, are you making the point for alpha versus beta here? Is that what you're doing when you're talking about independent returns and the number of boxes? Because this is something that's pretty, that's a, a, on top of everyone's mind, right? You're looking at the returns of the S&P for the last 15 years and you're looking at, at alpha. Is that why you're mentioning this? So I, I don't like to think of alpha versus beta. I like to think as a portfolio constructor, it's alpha and beta. They work uh -huh. together. And the way that alpha is useful is if it's uncorrelated to the stuff you already have. If you hire a manager who has good returns or bad returns, like if you have a manager who it turns out that they're not properly uncorrelated, and, and this is kind of the dirty secret of the hedge fund industry is that very, very few are. Most managers have a bit of equity beta, a bit of fixed income beta, a bit of short vol, a bit of credit, and maybe a little bit of some other stuff. But the vast majority of managers, when you bring them to your portfolio, are not that useful. Mm -hmm. They look good standalone, but you say, how, do they, how, how useful are they to my portfolio? And the answer is like nowhere near as useful as you think. So that's a bit of a challenge, just finding the useful managers. And to be useful, they have to be uncorrelated. And uncorrelated when it counts. When we discuss phase locking, yes. for example, yeah. it's a manager that looks uncorrelated when everything's going well. And then when the markets start going down, they start getting correlated. Yes, not, not helpful. Obviously. And, and, and uh, yeah. I mean, I, I would like to tie it back to systematic investing. Tell me, like, why does systematic and how can systematic investing help you avoid this? Right. So, so there's a couple things, and, and, and I would say all alpha, let's just talk about it. And so with systematic investing, to come back to where we started, you have a, a, a process 
that has a, a certain way it reacts to the market. And you can look to see how did it react at different times. Now, there's like there's always a little bit of backtesting bias and a little bit of, you know, did you actually have it built at that time? And would you have known to do that? But there is a lot more information in that than a discretionary manager. How would they have reacted? You have no idea. But mm -hmm. with the systematic process, you actually have a decent stab of understanding how it might react under different market environments that have occurred. From backtesting? Yep, from backtesting. Is there any other way of except from backtesting? Uh, well, you can simulate returns and see, but the, the, but then your your response function is going to be very much on how your returns are simulated. Do That's they, right. Do they have some serial correlation? Well, then a trending process is going to look good on it. Do they have fat tails? Well, then you're, you're you know, do they mean revert? Well, then you're mean reverting. So you have to be careful because you will just find what you put into your into your assumptions. That's right. It will come back out at you. History is not perfect, but there's actually a fair amount of history, and you got a pretty good stab at it. So so what your systematic investor can do with more confidence than a discretionary investor is 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 give you a sense of the correlation structure, the diversification benefit, and how it can add to your portfolio. The um. You know, and so let's say that's the first thing, like why systematic investing? But I think I want to take one step back and say, like, what is it? Let's talk about it for one second. And and it's a broad universe. There are people who who spend their entire careers just day trading the ticks of the S&P 500. And, and there's people in, in, you know, like high frequency guys who are playing, like, you know, yeah. stat art programs and in, in names at so very, very high frequency. High frequency. Yep. HFTs are systematic investors, well, right? 100%. 100%. Yeah. Um, but there's it's a very different game. And you say, well, what's their what's their source of alpha? Well, it's statistical arbitrage most of so the time. So some of it's statistical arbitrage. I think a lot of it, if you're if you're high frequency, might be even the market making side of thing. In which case, you are playing a speed game. And the faster you are, the more likely you are to. If someone gives you some some equities to trade, and you're going to I'm going to push these back into the market. Your ability to do that is the ability to get a good trade out of the market, and that has everything to do with your speed. But if we if we take a step back and say, why? And I'm going to talk for a second about alternative risk premiums. So define define what is systematic investing. What would be for you systematic investing? How what are the hallmark of systematic investing? So the hallmarks are first of all, you're trying to capture an idea or a mm -hmm. thesis. And for some people, they'll be just data mining patterns. But I think it has to start with why why is this thing I'm trying I've identified? Why should it have a positive expected return? So the very first thing is understanding the thesis of what you're trying to pursue. Then you have to isolate it. So you separate it out. So I'm just capturing that thing. You have to build a process that captures it. And that process that captures it is a series of rules. Formalize it. Formalize it. And and so and 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 you have to be, and then look, there's a, there's a there's an art to this and a science to it. But but you're saying if I can capture an idea and I can put that and, and I can and then I can express that same idea across a whole variety of different assets, I can start to create a whole bunch of little return streams that come together. Uh -huh. And that idea would then be expressed, you know, broadly across a variety of assets, and we can kind of maybe call that a model. And that model will have a certain return profile. So you need some some equations. You need some some mathematical equations yeah, in order and it to formalize it it. it. it doesn't necessarily have to be that complicated. The, like the simplest form, you know, it might simply be like like a trend following process, where it's like if if the asset rose over the last year, I go long. If it fell over last year, I sell. That is a surprisingly useful and very very simple model. Yeah. of a signal and you say like should I be buying or selling 10 year bonds right now it's golden like, well, cross did they, did they go up or down and 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 so like there's obviously different rules and there's different you, know, you can start to like data mine parameters and like but just something very simple was it rising or falling recently you know should I buy or sell the next thing is well I'm going to trade all my assets I got to bring them together somehow and so that that's that vol targeting I talked about like if I'm going to buy some gold and some euro dollar futures and some 10 years and some S&P and and some crude oil Mm -hmm. And like maybe VIX, and you go like VIX might have eighty percent volatility, and S and P might be twenty, and crude might be forty, and your dollar futures might be I don't know, like depending, and 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 so you've got to size stuff right to put it together. Because if I have a bunch of individual bets, 
You know, if you think of those boxes again, if I put 10 times as much in one box as the rest, I don't get my square root of four times diversification benefit. I effectively have put all my money in one box. Mm -hmm. But if I put an equal bet in something that's 80% vol or something that's 8% vol, I put 10 times as much. I might as well not bother with this thing because it's going to get swamped by this guy. That's right. And so you have to size stuff and that's volatility. And so there's, a, there's a, every systematic investor is going to size all their bets so, correctly yeah. so that you have individual bets in each so bet. signal has, sizing. Signal sizing. You identify an idea, you isolate it, you capture it, and then you put it into play. And putting it into play is, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a whole technology build behind this. Obviously, if you're going to start a, a systematic investing firm, there's a lot of work on the technology side. You have to have a very good CTO. Yeah, you have to have a good like ops. You have to have a good COO. Like because at the end of the day, you're making a lot of bets. If it's in, if it's in equities or if it's in futures, um, you know. But just, systematic investing can also be OTC, right? It's just the uh, signal uh, and the sizing, absolutely but the execution. Be. Yep, yep, it absolutely could be. So um, and and so from that perspective, you go, what's your technology? Is well, it's data, which is data cleaning and data collecting, and you have to figure out like, if you're using real time data, you have to capture it and, and you have to scrub it. You have to have systems that 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 measure your volatility. You have to have systems that that take that data, marry the signals to it, and as quickly as possible, say what you want to do with that trade, like going long or short, you have to have risk built into every piece of it. You have to have risk oversight so that you're comfortable with what your process is doing. And so like, you know, some systematic investors uh, trade just straight into the market, like machine does what it does and like, like and it kicks out trades and off they go. We're a little bit more cautious. We, we trade, you know, a couple of times a day uh, but every single time, like the trades are produced, they go into a blotter and a human PM goes through and goes, okay, here's what we're trying to do. We have a series of dashboards that will tell us, here's the risks we're taking, here's the positions we're taking, here's the signals that we have, here's why we have those signals. We can understand, you know, and we say, that looks good to me, off it goes. Um, so you have a broad yep. variety of systematic investor. Yep. You can have high frequency, you can have yep. lower frequency, you can have actually pretty long-term investors right. that are still and, systematic. And, and the beauty of that, you say, well, how do you get these diversifying boxes? As an investor, I want more uncorrelated things. Yeah. And uncorrelated can come from different assets. But assets get more and more correlated over time as more and more people play them and, and, and buy and sell them together. You can have uh, uncorrelated strategies. And so that's, you know, someone's buying when someone, you know, because the asset's rising, maybe you're buying because it's falling, maybe you have different rules as to when buy or sell. But a major point of diversification is holding period. Because uh -huh. you have someone who's holding for a day, they're, they're long or they're short on any given day, and someone else is holding for a week and someone else is holding for a month, it's very hard for those to be correlated. This guy's long short every day and this guy's holding for five days. They're probably not going to be that correlated. And this guy's holding for a month. They're probably not that correlated. So holding period is a good point of diversification. So if you want managers with different time periods, that's also helpful. Um, so different strategies, different assets, different time periods, sometimes different geographies. Um, and then of course, every manager is going to have come up with their own sets of strategies. So you can diversify across managers. But to say there's you know, on one hand, it's like, and having spent a fair amount of time at my previous job investing in external managers, I can say if you speak to 200, 160 to 170 are all kind of doing the same thing. So if you go through like, you know, like they are typically capturing the same major alternative risk premiums. If it's an equity space, it's usually some version of stat arb and mean reversion or it's momentum or it's value or it's quality or it's low volume. Those are your major uh -huh. strategies and, and maybe some timing of those things. If it's in future space, it's the carries, you know, uh, and we haven't really had time to talk about these, but, um, uh, a lot of macro players will play in the, on the in the FX space. The the difference between the, the the borrowing and lending rates of different countries. You can do that in fixed income space as well. You might you know, actually can do that in credit space. And and so and then you can see um, there are uh, momentum's, mean reversions, values, qualities, and in, in in futures as well. And so we kind of try and play a, a basket of those because the more different ideas you have, like for us, we would say you know you as an investor are saying I'm trying to find 
as many boxes as possible. It's the same for us. We're trying to build as many boxes as possible inside our process. As a systematic as, investor. As a systematic yeah. investor, because once you've built it, it kind of does its own thing and off it goes and, and it's no extra work to run it. So the more that you can add, there's, there's a massive incremental benefit to adding more processes because not only do you get your diversification benefit, if each of these are equally good, the more you add, the more your, your expected return on risk, you know, arises. But you actually get some other ancillary benefits that might not be obvious. Like if you had money in five managers and, and one manager is buying S&P and the other one is selling S&P, well, you're going to have to pay transaction costs on That's both right. sides. But yeah. if you have both these models buying and selling at the same time, that, that can net it. That's right. And at the end of the day, you save on transaction costs. And you go, does that matter? It's like it absolutely matters. It's like it can be yeah. absolutely huge savings. And in fact, the more models you have, the more the next models transactions diversify and net into the other ones. And, and that, so, that's a great segue into the last, our last question for today. What are the challenges of systematic investing? So you just mentioned one already. Like if you have systematic investors that are crossing each other in the market, you're paying bid offer. Well, any investors. Yeah, that's right. Any investors. Yeah. True. So, I mean, systematic, like, like, like all investing, the future is unknown. Yes. And, and that is a major that, problem. That, that is a major problem. <laughs> uh, if it wasn't, it would be much, much, much easier uh, and a lot less fun. But so if you have, you know, you say, well, what what we we had our systematic team sitting next to our macro team at the last place I worked. And it was actually very interesting interplay because they, while we're playing similar types of strategies, the macro guys are also paying attention to value and momentum and carry and 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 they're and they're and they're kind of trying to time that. Uh-huh. The systematic guys are doing the same thing. They tend to succeed and fail at sometimes different points. So, so sometimes they're doing something similar, but at turning points and inflection points, there are certain circumstances where the discretionary guys can see the future and something that that's coming along that hasn't happened before they like they might be able to see into that and then there are times oh, that's this, interesting and, and there are times when the systematic group outperforms these guys because it's a more diversified attack and when the past is more persistent these guys tend to capture it better and so together they're actually very very good diversification i would say if you were to think about is there some value to having both in your portfolio like absolutely these are two boxes i would always recommend both so you go the challenge is to any investor is if the future just comes out of nowhere and is completely random and and you but know. for systematic investing, yeah. I think one of the main challenge is it often looks like a black box, right? So, so, so I would say there's two challenges. There's the challenges to building it, and like, and you know, where does it where does it struggle? Systematic investing might struggle when the future has a massive structural break from the past, a pattern uh -huh. that existed for some reason, whether it was a certain player doing something, or whether it was a certain type of interaction. If that if that snaps and breaks, if something changes dramatically, well, then you can get caught on the other side of it until you can adapt to it. The um, and, and discretionary investors are going to get caught maybe, but maybe they can see through that. Maybe they can't. It depends on, 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 you know, a bunch of other factors as well. The challenges for someone investing in systematic investors. So if you say, like, I've got systematic managers and I don't, I don't really understand it all that well. And how do I get confident and comfortable with what they're doing? Yeah. Is that you have to understand that behind the processes, there's really kind of two ways to do it. There's, as you described, the black box where even the systematic investors don't know what they're doing. Like well, a machine learning attack or like, I just like you throw the data in. And, go, and, and you do enough searching of it and it kicks something out. Okay. And that's like, it's interesting. And there's definitely people who do that. We take a more, every single model that we run and built, it started with an investment thesis that I could describe exactly the same way a discretionary investor would describe their investment thesis. Okay. And so every single one of them starts with that investment thesis. And so I could sit and describe exactly why I expect this to make money. And the key feature of this, and, and this is, this is a, a, a one or two minute story, is understanding what an alternative risk premium is. And I'm going to right, say so what, what is an alternative very, risk premium? Very quickly, because systematic investors mostly are picking up what I'm going to call risk premiums, not alpha. Now, I'm going to just describe okay, alpha let's, let's go. as everything you don't have, but I'm going to re-describe alpha in another way. And what people typically think of alpha, or they like when they make, you know, so they got a stock picker, 
Stock picker alpha, let's talk about that for a second. If you are a stock picker and you're long Ford, and I'm a stock picker and I'm short Ford, we are at war. You're trying to take my money. I'm yep. betting you're wrong. You're betting I'm wrong. I'm trying to take your money. And it's very hard to pry money out of the hands of someone who doesn't want, who's trying to take money out of your hand. You have to be smarter, faster, stronger, inside information. You have to be right. I cheat, steal. You have to be right. They have to be wrong. And that's hard. And that's a zero-sum game. And it's a net loser game because after T costs and transaction costs and fees and everything, like the, the average person loses. Mm-hmm. It's worse than that because for every really, really successful stock picker, you know, if you have a hedge fund that makes a billion dollars, there's not another hedge fund they took a billion dollars from. They took $10,000 from 100,000 people. That The vast majority of people in stock picking lose money. Okay, that's kind of a loser game. But you go, what's, what's, that? Like, what's the difference between that and investing in equities? If I lend my money to the stock market, is that alpha? It's like, no, that's beta. And you go, why? Why does that have a positive return? It's like, well, because I know that when I lend to you, I expect to get paid back more than I lent you. Yeah. You're, I'm going to lend you money and you're going to pay me back something more than I lent you. Yeah. Here's the key thing. You also, when I lend you money, expect to pay me back more than I lent you. Absolutely. So you're paying money to me, but you're doing it happily because you're better off because, because I've given you some cash to boost up your business or because you have some need for it, the more than I have. Like I have, I have more cash than I know what to do with and you have the need for cash. Yep. You'll pay me something for it and you'll pay me the risk-free rate plus something for the risk I take. Like there's an uncertainty that's as to when premium. or how I get it back. And that's the risk premium. There's an equity risk premium. There's a fixed income risk premium. There's a credit risk premium. There is all sorts of other risk premiums where there's a payer and a payee and there's a flow of wealth. And you can say, why does that person happily pay that person? And they're all over the place. And you might think of them as insurance risk premiums, where you say like, whenever you buy insurance, whenever you buy insurance, you do it on expected loss. If you buy house insurance, you're expecting to lose money. The insurance companies expect to make a profit. You know they're expecting to make a profit, but you do it happily. Why? Because your house burning down is a catastrophic loss for you. It's everything you own. It's all Mm -hmm. super risk. So you'd pay some of your wealth away to, to not have that risk. And the insurance company takes your risk and your risk and 10,000 other risks and diversifies them. And it takes all those returns, adds them up, and those risks diversify. So the alpha is that game of being right while the other is wrong, prying that money yep. out of somebody's hand. And the yep. risk premium is just the money you're expecting to pay in order to get that money right now. People yep. and other types of premium. There are players all over the capital markets who are gladly paying money away to achieve their utility in some way. And if you can be on the other side of that and help them achieve their utility, either by lending them money or insuring their risks, if you can, you can take those returns and diversify them. And that's what, that's what every major alternative risk premium is, is, is meeting the needs of a player who's happily paying you money to do it. That's right. And so now it comes down to, like, like, like the insurance company, it comes down to diversification. If you only insure two houses, well, I got almost the same risk as you, that'd be crazy. But if I can insure 100,000 houses and they're probably independent, or if I'm the casino, and, and you're playing a game of roulette. Like, I'd much rather be the casino than the person playing roulette because I can diversify across all the outcomes. So and, how and does this my tie edge. in with the challenges of systematic investing? This, the way it captures is if, and, and this, is, you know, this, is, this is a bit of an if, but like for the systematic investors who understand the payer and the payee and the flow of wealth, there is a story as strong as any discretionary investor's story. Why am I making this investment? I'm buying this thing because it's good cash flows, because it's value, because there's, or because I'm lending to someone who I expect to pay me back. And if I diversify it well, I can get paid. The systematic investor who is built with the same sort of ideas, built the same sort of ideas and, and, and is capturing them systematically, has the same confidence in that payer payee approach. And, and, and so you're stepping away from going, it's pure alpha. I have to be smarter, faster, stronger to win, to I just have to identify these flows and be on the other side of that trade, it captures them. And now my trade turns more to how many of these things can I find? 
and how well can I portfolio construct them so that I so like equally diversify the risks away and minimize the risk from all of them, and I can capture those little slivers of return, and I can diversify the risk. It's like that would be a model, and 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 those exist everywhere in the capital markets. Am I right in saying that one of the challenges versus a non-systematic investor would be that the non-systematic investor, if you're giving him money, you're already you're investing in his reputation. While for a systematic investor, you have to invest in the ability of the manager to explain the process. I would absolutely. I think it's very important that you get confident the manager understands why they are making money. The last thing you want is, well, I would think anyways, the manager who's like, well, I, I tried 10,000 things and these are the two that work, that you should not be very confident about that process. But for the manager says, I know why this is a positive return process. It's, it's something that has made money persistently, consistently over time. Um, and there are many of these risk premiums that have made money for 30, 40 years. If you, have a, if you have an understanding of the drivers, then you get back to, it always comes down to the same thing. When you're investing in managers, you should not be buying a return stream. You're not buying the discretionary guy's return stream. What you have to be doing is getting comfortable with the thought process of this investor because you want to know how they're going to react going forward. The same thing with systematic investors. You should get comfortable and confident with the humans behind it because they built the systems. You're not buying models and you wouldn't want to invest in a manager who's just bought models from someone else. You want to buy the same, so it's the same set of conversations. Are you confident and comfortable that this individual um, is creative, is passionate, understands what their edge is, and has built something safe and robust to capture that edge? And it's the same, whether it's systematic or discretionary. I think from that perspective, it's a very similar set of decisions. Well, that, that's fantastic, Chris. Thank you very much for your time thank today. You. That was wonderful to talk about systematic investing. And thank you all for tuning in to Bodhi Brew. Until next time. Awesome. Thanks.